This is They Create Worlds, episode 63, Lawsuits for Nintendo. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, we did part one. Now it's part two. More lawsuits. But this time, we're not doing any kind of lawsuit. It's all about Nintendo. That's right, because Nintendo, being such a giant company in the industry for such a prolonged period of time, has definitely had an interesting legal history. I think it's probably fair to say the most interesting legal history of any of the video game companies. Not just in terms of the number of lawsuits, which is easy, but just the size, the scope, the epic grandeur of the Nintendo lawsuits is really second to no other company. And so to kind of continue this idea that we started in the last episode of looking at this uh, webpage that had the 11 lawsuits and then, you know, mixing, matching, changing, whatever, it made sense to just devote a whole podcast just to Nintendo rather than try to squeeze some of these in with some of the copyright stuff we talked about last time. Now, we're not just going after what Nintendo did as far as suing everyone because we've covered some of that before with Nintendo playing with power and them wanting to go, oh, you're going to do bad things on my Nintendo over (laughs) here. Let's see you in court. Right. In fact, all of the major lawsuits that we're going to be talking about this time are going to be cases where other companies sued Nintendo. But in all of these cases, Nintendo emerges victorious, not always on the first round, but by the end of it, emerges victorious because they are very good at using the court system, whether it's on the offense or on defense. And a lot of that really can be credited to Howard Lincoln, I think it's fair to say. We've talked about Howard Lincoln before. You had Minoru Arakawa, he was the president of Nintendo of America. And then you had Howard Lincoln, who was the first senior vice president and then later became the chairman of Nintendo of America. And he was a lawyer. That was his profession before he got involved with these Nintendo guys. He got involved with Nintendo because two of his clients, Ron Judy and Al Stone, were working as distributors for Nintendo and then were brought in-house to Nintendo. And he was helping them with their legal stuff. And that's how he was introduced to Nintendo. He was known as a tenacious lawyer. He was known as a real bulldog. He wasn't a trial lawyer. Now, when they went to trial, Howard Lincoln wasn't representing them. But he was very good at honing in on legal arguments and making sure to stand his ground and not be intimidated by anybody. As we'll see even in the very first case we cover here, that's really been kind of critical to Nintendo's success in this period in the legal realm. Is this something that seem to be pretty unique for Nintendo to have someone in upper management who is so skilled at the legal business and really give them a unique perspective that is unparalleled to pretty much any other company. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that could certainly be true. I mean, very few of these companies have been run by lawyers. Now, all of them have pretty decent in-house counsel and all of that kind of thing. But the fact that the number two man and then later, the, the number one man, because technically chairman outranks president, in the Nintendo of America organization was a very skilled attorney. I think that definitely had to play a role in how well they did. 
And then they hired the best trial lawyers as well. Like I said, Lincoln's not trying cases, but they always went and hired the finest New York attorneys to move their case forward as well. And so that also plays a role. And as we'll see as we go on, their opponents did not always do the same thing, often to their detriment. I would also point out that because he is a lawyer, he has almost an in with other lawyers. He can speak the lingo. He can interact with them, understand how things go on. And that gives him a specific breadth of knowledge and relatability that maybe may make someone else fight harder for his case as opposed to, yeah, he's another client. Yeah, he pays me a lot, but (laughs) it's just another client. I don't have this personal relationship going on or this fellow kindred spirit. Sure. And, you know, Minoru Arakawa and Howard Lincoln were really a perfect duo for managing a company like Nintendo of America because Minoru Arakawa was fairly shy and didn't like being in the limelight, didn't like being the public face, but he inspired great loyalty and was very good at building a culture and a team that could function well together. And then you had Howard Lincoln, who was never afraid to be out there on the front lines, never afraid to be making the big arguments and the big speeches. And so you had kind of the yin and yang there of running that company. And that's a big part of uh, the Nintendo success story. We won't get into super detail on that in this episode since we're focusing on the legal matters. But I think it's good to kind of have that out there just as a context for some of what we're going to discuss in this uh, coming hour or so. All right. What will be our first case? Well, you know, you can almost do a history of the early years of Nintendo and video games entirely through the frame or the point of view of the litigation they've been involved in. Nintendo, of course, was a card company, Hanafuda, and then moved into all these other areas, moved into toys, finally moved into video games, both in the arcade and in the home. They had some success in the 70s with some of what they did, but their true breakout product that put them on the map, particularly in the United States, was Donkey Kong. We've talked about the creation of Donkey Kong before. We won't talk about the creation of Donkey Kong now, but that's the game that really established them and said, hey, this company really knows what they're doing when it comes to video games. And it was also the subject of their first major lawsuit. The game comes out in the arcades. It does well in the arcades. Nobody really notices the game from a legal standpoint when it's in the arcades. In terms of the intellectual property, there were some cases where Nintendo was going after counterfeiters and parallel importers, but that's different. We're not talking about that kind of thing. But then they licensed the game to Coleco, which planned to make it their flagship title in the launch of their ColecoVision video game system. It was going to be the bundled game in the ColecoVision, and it was going to be available exclusively for the ColecoVision in the first holiday season. They then later released ports of it also for the VCS and the Intellivision. Coleco did. But it was going to be the system seller of that ColecoVision, which got it a lot of attention. This time, Universal Studios took notice. Because Universal Studios had the rights to this little movie franchise called King Kong. And we're talking about the old black and white version of this movie, right? Uh, There's the black and white version. There was a sequel to the black and white version. And then more recently, in the mid-70s, Universal had done a remake. 
a reimagining of the King Kong story. So they were the most recent company to make a King Kong movie, and they, at least as far as they were concerned, had the rights to King Kong. Now there's this game called Donkey Donkey Kong. Kong. You know, that was unfortunate. I mean, was Miyamoto partially inspired by King Kong? I mean, I'm sure he was. The plot bears no real resemblance, but you do have ape kidnapping woman taking to top of structure. And a very broad stroke that is copying the effective plot. But the the real problem, the real problem is that name, Donkey Kong. I mean, I don't think Universal would have probably noticed or cared so much about those elements because it plays out very differently. But Kong is right there in the name. And that happened because you had Japanese people naming the game that had no idea what they were doing. They knew they were making this game for the American market, as we discussed. This was a a stopgap game once uh, the game Radar Scope did not do as well as hoped in the United States. So it was going to be marketed at the West from the very beginning. So it needed a Western name. Miyamoto, who at this point in his life doesn't really know much English, took to the dictionaries, you know, Japanese English dictionaries kind of things. He was looking for essentially a name that conveyed the idea of a stubborn gorilla. He went to a Japanese English to English dictionary to look for something similar to stubborn. And it wasn't a very good dictionary, obviously, because it came back with donkey. Now, obviously, you can see the connection. Stubborn is a mule. Mm -hmm. Donkeys are similar to mules. The idea of the stubbornness of a donkey or a mule is something that is part of our cultural understanding. But we would never use the word donkey as a synonym for stubborn. Why are you such a donkey about making sure that this podcast is on time? Exactly. We just don't do that. So you could see that the Japanese to English dictionary kind of vaguely understood the concept, but it wasn't a very good dictionary if it was using donkey as a word for stubborn. There is a long history with Japan and English where Japan English is rather hilarious if you're a native English speaker and then you go to Japan and read the Japanese English stuff. Gentlemen, make your time. All your base are belong to us. And that's just the translations. Yes. I'll look up a, uh, there's a video I saw where a guy who lives in Japan actually goes over some of the English that he came across in Japan in advertisements. Right, and they it's do that. hilarious. Yeah, they absolutely do that. They use English from time to time, like you said, in advertisements and whatnot, in ways that, that would never make sense to a, a native speaker. But it's, it's used more for the exoticness and to convey a feeling than it is to actually make sense in terms of using the language in the way it would be used to communicate amongst a native speaker. So, yeah, absolutely. And so there's some of that going on, but also it's, it's just a bad dictionary. And then Kong was kind of slang. I think already in Japan for a big ape, obviously derived from King Kong. Miyamoto's not thinking of this in terms of, hey, there's a movie King Kong. (laughs) You know, he's just, how do I convey the idea of stubborn gorilla in English? That's what he was going for. And he came up with Donkey Kong. So that name's a problem now because, you know, the gameplay a little bit similar to the plot of of King Kong. I mean, only in the vaguest sense, but a little bit similar. And then the name. The name is just a problem. So uh, those of you who listened to our episode last week will remember 
this idea of derivative works and uh, substantial similarity and all of these things. Universal is going to be arguing that, hey, they have basically just taken our property, made some slight changes to it, and have now created a derivative work that is infringing on our copyright because it'll cause marketplace confusion. It's the similar idea to the Casey Munchkin and Pac-Man situation that we had. (laughs) Except here it's going from movie into video game. Exactly. So they sue. They sue Coleco. And they sue Nintendo. Coleco because they're releasing this home version. And Nintendo because they're the original creator. And basically they want royalties. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking to have this game taken off the market. They're not stupid. They can see that this game is going to make a lot of money. It ends up ultimately selling 6 million cartridges across all three of those formats. Atari, Mattel, and Coleco. But they want some of that pie. That's right. They want royalties. Because they say, okay, fine, we'll do this, whatever but we got to get paid. Coleco capitulates immediately. They just back down. They're like, fine, fine. We'll do a royalty agreement. Then unbeknownst to Nintendo, because Coleco at this point hasn't told Nintendo that they are backing down, Coleco starts trying to convince Nintendo that they really need to settle too because this is serious business. Or that they need to settle, not settle too, because like I said, they haven't revealed that at this point they've already paid up. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to convince Nintendo that they need to go along as well. Universal Studios at this time is controlled by two gentlemen named Sidney Scheinberg and Lou Wasserman. They're the heads of MCA, which is the parent company of Universal, MCA Universal. These are kind of the last moguls in Hollywood. They're not moguls going all the way back to the the 30s. They're not contemporaries of Zucker and Fox and uh, the Warner Brothers and whatnot. But they're kind of the most powerful people in Hollywood at this point. These are the big dogs on top of the pile. And they have a big company and they are known for their litigious nature. So they are not to be trifled with. I mean, Coleco being intimidated by MCA Universal, not a bad response to be intimidated by that company. Now remember, at this point, Nintendo is a fly spec. They're somewhat big in Japan, but they are nothing in America. There's no Famicom yet. There's no NES yet. This is 1982, this suit starts. They only have a few arcade units. And Donkey Kong is their only supermassive hit. So this is not the Nintendo that we will be talking about later on that gets sued for antitrust. This is a little fly spec of an arcade company going up against the most powerful entertainment company in Hollywood. In that situation, you settle. Under normal circumstances. So a meeting's called. Sidney Scheinberg, Lou Wasserman, call a meeting at the uh, executive dining room or whatever at Universal. Arakawa, Lincoln, all coming in. At this point, Lincoln is still not fully affiliated with the company. I'm not even sure he's become a senior vice president yet, though he does shortly, but I don't think he is yet. But he's been doing the legal work for Nintendo. He's their attorney. Arakawa Lincoln come in. They have the big sit down. Scheinberg assumes that they're there to settle. But something feels off to Howard Lincoln. It's just his legal instincts kicking in. There's something weird about the way that Universal is treating this case. And so he knows that they need to get more information. Maybe in the end, we still end up settling. I mean, if you have a losing proposition and you're a small company like Nintendo, you have to settle. 
but there's something not quite right about the way Universal has been communicating everything. So he tells Arakawa that we need to wait. We can't settle right now. We shouldn't. Scheinberg thinks that they're there to settle. And when Lincoln says that they're not, he gets furious. Not only does he threaten them with litigation, he says, according to later court testimony, that the litigation department of Universal is a profit center. In other words, they use their legal department to go beat up on little companies like Nintendo and take their lunch money. They're a bully. (laughs) And that, you know, they will end them, basically, in litigation. Because he's trying to be intimidating, you know? Mm -hmm. But they decide to go to court anyway. And Howard Lincoln's instincts proved to be entirely correct. And for this, we have to have a little history lesson on King Kong. Alrighty then. King Kong was created by a guy named Marion Cooper, the character of King Kong, this big giant ape on this remote island, whatever. He allowed RKO Pictures to make movies based on his character, King Kong. Mm. He didn't give RKO the rights to the character. He just gave them the rights to make movies based on the character. Which they did. They made the 1933 King Kong and they made a sequel. Meanwhile, he exploits King Kong in the book medium as well. He writes a book, Cooper does, completely unrelated to the movies about King Kong as well. Because he has the rights to his character still. He's just licensing. He's not selling. Well, that's his understanding of the situation. Mm -hmm. Decades later, RKO feels that they have the rights to the whole thing. And in the meantime, some important documentation has gone missing. Cooper claims that he has a couple of letters from RKO specifically outlining that it was a license only. But after 1946, those documents go missing and RKO doesn't have these documents. So RKO is arguing that they have the full rights to everything. But there's no real documentation one way or the other. Right. So they exist in this kind of limbo for a while. Until in 1962, RKO decides to license King Kong to Toho Studios in Japan, the makers of the Godzilla movies, because they're going to do a King Kong versus Godzilla movie. This attracts Cooper's attention. He's still alive at this point. He's like, oh, no, you can't. You can't be licensing that character to Toho. He's still my character. You don't own that. You just own those films. But because of those missing documents, he couldn't prove it at the time. So at that point, it appeared to be settled that RKO Pictures owned those rights to King Kong. So in 1975, not long before this case, because remember, the case we're talking about is in 82, so this is only seven years earlier. Universal Pictures wants to make that remake that I was talking about of King Kong. The producer, Dino De Laurentiis, also separately wanted to make a remake of King Kong. Remaking King Kong was just something that was in the air here. And, you know, it's 40 some years later. People want to make a new King Kong. So Universal wants to make the movie. Laurentius wants to make the movie. Laurentius bought the rights from RKO to make a new movie. Universal is not happy about this because they want to make a movie. It's just it's a pissing match between (laughs) movie moguls, essentially. And so during the course of this litigation, something very interesting comes out. Remember how I told you there was a book created that Cooper had published separate from the movies? Mm -hmm. For one reason or another, that book has fallen out of copyright. And so the book is in the public domain. And since the book 
with the character of King Kong is in the public domain. One can do like a remake or a new or derivative new story based on the book King Kong without affecting any copyright in the movies, because in that medium, King Kong has gone into the public domain. This point, Cooper gets uh, Cooper's son gets involved. Cooper's dead at this point. But Cooper's son gets involved and starts bringing up his rights issues again, taking advantage of this whole situation to be like, no, no, wait a minute. We really do own this, guys. There were a couple of different rulings. First, the judge ruled that because of the novelization being in the public domain, that Universal could make a movie based on the King Kong character without getting any rights from RKO because King Kong, the character, is in the public domain. Then the other thing that he ruled is that all of the rights outside of the films, which RKO still owns, actually do belong to Cooper. I don't know if the documents resurfaced. I don't know the full history of the case, but he found compelling enough evidence that what Cooper claimed all along is true and that he still owned everything outside of the movies themselves, which, of course, RKO has the copyright to. So what all of this means is that not only is the character of King Kong in the public domain, but Universal doesn't own rights to anything, even if there was a trademark on King Kong that is being diluted by the Donkey Kong character. Universal doesn't have standing to sue over that because the Cooper estate owns those rights, not Universal. Really, if they have to deal with anyone, they have to deal with Cooper. Right, who's not a party to any of this. So, you know, that's unimportant. Cooper's not trying to do anything here. But it's Universal. Universal itself, when it wanted to do this remake, that systematically proved that King Kong was in the public domain and that nobody had the rights to it, and that's why they could make their movie based on it. Which means Universal knows they don't have the rights. And yet they're going after Nintendo and Coleco. Yeah, it's, it's not like this is confusion on Universal's part. They made the argument that got King Kong to be declared in the public domain. They know they don't own the rights to the King Kong character. So it's just being a moment of I'm going to claim rights and because I am so litigious and big and powerful, no one's going to question me on it. Exactly. So because Howard Lincoln would not be intimidated and because Howard Lincoln felt that there was something off in the way Universal was treating this case, not only does Nintendo subsequently win, both on the grounds that the characters in the public domain and on the grounds that there's really no confusion anyway, substantial similarity test that we talked about last time. They're just not that similar. They not only win the case on those grounds, but the judge finds that there was willful abuse of the judicial process by Universal. And so they have to pay Nintendo's legal costs as well because, because they were malicious in bringing this suit and all the other stuff that they did on the side. Because when Nintendo decided to fight it, you know, there was going to be a Donkey Kong board game, a Donkey Kong this, Donkey Kong that. Universal started going after all of these third-party licensees, not just Coleco, but all the other third-party licensees for board games and clothing and whatever else, and started threatening all of them to stop them from releasing their products, which further hurts Nintendo. Universal had to pay them back for all of that stuff. Because not only were they wrong, but they knew they were in the wrong and they brought a legal suit anyway. Ultimately, it ended up costing them a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So this is the beginning of Nintendo, the legal giant. Because they not only win the case, they dismantle their opposition. 
And it all comes back to Howard Lincoln resisting this immense pressure to settle and taking the time to think the case through and going to trial instead of standing down. And he's rewarded for that. He's senior vice president. He becomes Arakawa's right-hand man. He was already kind of becoming that anyway, but this kind of cements his place in the organization. And it's the beginning of Nintendo legal juggernaut. So, of course, the next big happening in the Nintendo universe after the arcade games is the Famicom. Nintendo Entertainment System. All that good stuff. This thing's rather successful. A wee bit. Yeah, I mean, this thing was a big deal. So, of course, it draws attention, too. Now, you've got Philips out there. We've talked about the Magnavox patent litigation. And they do go after Nintendo, and Nintendo settles with them. This is one of the few times that they don't triumph in a legal case. It's possible that those horrible Mario and Zelda CDI games were a result of this legal settlement rather than the result of a licensing deal for CD technology. Not sure. And I'm sure all of us would like to forget that such things even exist. Yeah, but now we have to put them in the show notes because we mentioned them. You monster. (laughs) You're getting me back for last time, aren't you? (laughs) That's right. And in the end, it's only our listeners who suffer. Because we care. (laughs) That's right. So we're not going to talk about that case because it ends in a settlement. But there's another very important console patent outside of the Magnavox patents. And that's the patent held by Alpex Computer. So the Magnavox Odyssey is a dedicated console, the original version. What I mean is it's entirely hardware-based. It only plays the games that are built into the hardware. The initial version had interchangeable circuit cards, but it's basically just jumpers. It's changing the routing of the circuitry to generate different dots. It's still all hardware-based. There's no ROM on those circuits. It's just connecting different parts of the hardware in different ways. The first programmable console system, CPU in the master unit with a ROM chip that plugs into it with individual games on it, programmable system, was created by a small Connecticut company called Alpex. And then Alpex licensed this technology to the semiconductor company Fairchild. So the Fairchild Channel F, the first programmable console that came out in November 1976, beat Atari to market by about a year. It's based on technology that was created by this other company, Alpex, and was patented by this other company, Alpex. The patent in this case refers to a very specific system where you have a microprocessor that is connected to RAM, random access memory, which stores graphical data bit by bit and creates a frame buffer that then tells the CRT what to draw on the screen. So every single pixel on your television or your monitor or whatever is represented by a single bit in memory, more if you're doing color. You are essentially drawing the entire pattern that's going to appear on the television screen in memory. That's what the frame buffer is. That's that place in memory where you are drawing what the entire screen is going to look like. And then that RAM, that frame buffer, tells the CRT how to draw it. And so you're refreshing the entire screen every 60th of a second in the American standard, 50th of a second in the European standard. It's the first programmable system, but it's not the only way to do that. Nintendo has a microprocessor and RAM as well, but it does things a little differently. It uses what are called shift registers instead. 
So instead of the RAM having this one big frame buffer in memory that encompasses the entire screen, it has divided the screen into slices. And each one of those slices has a certain number of pixels in it. And instead of redrawing the entire screen every 60th of a second, you're only redrawing those parts of the screen that have changed. Presumably that's why it's called shift registers, because when, when something shifts is when you redraw. So that's a far more efficient way to draw graphics because you're not drawing everything all the time. It also gets you some interesting effects. Say in Super Mario Brothers 3, if you play it on a screen that is not an old CRT, you can actually see on the left and right as mm -hmm. you move Mario back and forth, these shift registers coming in as the drawing is a little bit distorted, a little bit weird before it actually gets into the quote-unquote play area. Exactly. It's what really makes fast action scrolling games possible. A Fairchild Channel F couldn't have really, I mean, it, it was all single screen games, but it couldn't have really done scrolling games very well. Even if it had a faster processor and more RAM, I mean, it would have taken a huge amount more RAM to be able to do that smoothly. But an NES, because it's only redrawing those parts of the screen that it has to, it scrolls a lot smoother and a lot faster and a lot better. So the question becomes, how specific do you need to get in this patent? Is it enough that both of them have a processor, RAM, and draw an image on the screen using pixels? Or do you have to do it the exact same way for the patent account? I mean, my patent law isn't very strong, but, you know, when it came to the Magnavox patent cases, and the Magnavox patent cases don't set precedent for the Alpex cases, but when it comes to the Magnavox cases, there was a much broader interpretation taken. And I think that's in part due to the way the patents were written. Since they were patenting something much broader, where uh, if you remember what they patented is two objects collide and one object goes off on a different vector. They were patenting the entire idea of doing that. It didn't matter how you were doing it. So even though a Magnavox Odyssey worked completely differently from an Atari VCS, worked entirely completely differently from a Nintendo Entertainment System, as long as you had machine symbols colliding and one of them going off on a new vector, it violated the patent. And the original court in the Alpex versus Nintendo case, the district court, took an equally broad view. They decided that, okay, you've got video memory, you've got microprocessor, you've got RAM, video memory. You're redrawing the screen using RAM. They're doing the same thing. It doesn't matter that one uses a frame buffer and one uses shift registers. They're doing the same thing. They're redrawing the screen. So it's a violation. Nintendo lost that one at the trial level. But they appealed the case. And in the appellate jurisdiction, they won. It really came down to just looking at this technology. And it's like, okay, what's really patented here? And the appellate court decided that no, what Alpex really patented was the idea of a frame buffer. Not any which way that you can possibly use a microprocessor and RAM to draw graphics on a screen, but specifically drawing graphics on a screen using a frame buffer. So since Nintendo did something completely different, Nintendo uh, is not infringing. So they win it on appeal. But that's Nintendo and patent law. <laughs> Even they can't defeat the Magnavox patents. Yeah, no one did. And I think we covered that thing ad nauseum in the Magnavox lawsuits. Exactly. But they absolutely were able to defeat this Alpex case. So 
is a little patent law for Nintendo. The other major area, of course, and this is one we did talk about some in our Playing With Power episode, is the way that Nintendo controlled the market during the days of the Nintendo Entertainment System. We've talked about some of this stuff before, but it's still useful to recap. Because the crash had been caused largely by oversaturation of product, Nintendo's primary goal with the Nintendo Entertainment System and the third-party software ecosystem was to stop the market from being overrun with software no matter what. They limited their third parties to releasing five games per year on the system. Could release no more than that. Many smaller companies didn't want to release more than that. Some companies only released two or three a year. But nobody could release more than five. Nintendo had to manufacture all of those games themselves. The company, the third party, paid Nintendo for the privilege. Of course, manufacturing costs money. So they're paying a licensing fee to get on the system. They're paying a fee for the manufacturing. And Nintendo decides how much product you get. Nintendo listens to your input, but only Nintendo decides how much product everybody gets. And they do this basically by evaluating every game they get for quality, deciding based on that how much they think each game can sell, weigh that against the total amount of product that is coming into the market that year, and then adjust the ratios of cartridges produced against the the total number of cartridges available based on the quality of the product and how much they think it'll sell. In that system, nobody gets the amount of product that they want. Now, from what I've heard, and I said this in the Playing With Power episode too, I've talked to several heads of third-party Nintendo Entertainment System software companies. Everyone agrees that Nintendo applied their standards fairly. It was an objective system. They didn't do special favors for people they particularly liked. They didn't do special favors for their own games. They treated everyone equally. But in a system like that, you're never going to get everything you want because the publisher wants to sell as much as they think they can get away with. They don't care that this publisher has this game on the market and it'll probably take some of the market. No, we'll produce what we think we can sell of our game and then we'll use our marketing and distribution and whatever else to crush this other guy. So nobody gets what they want in a system like that. If you realize afterwards that you don't have enough product to fill market demand, it's too late. Because we talked about before, too, how cartridges have a long lead time, several months. By the time you would do a reorder, because your game is sold out, it'll be three more months before that reorder actually hits store shelves, because it just takes that long to manufacture cartridges. And by then, the demand's gone. So if you make too little up front, you lose money. You can't recoup that. Your game's dead. I mean, there might be... Certain specific examples like The Legend of Zelda that may sell forever and ever and ever, but 99% of games, you make what you're going to make in that first cartridge order. There will be no reorders. You're dead at that point. And Nintendo is telling me that I can't have all the product I want. Even with third parties that liked Nintendo and worked well with Nintendo, that chafed a little bit. You have that going on. Then you also just have, you have that limit, that five-game limit. For some companies, that's okay. Plenty of small companies don't care about that at all. Bigger companies care about that. 
especially bigger companies that have a back catalog full of all sorts of classic hits that they would just love to bring out on the new Nintendo Entertainment System. Companies like, say, Atari. That's right. Specifically, though, Atari Games. We have to remember, there are two Ataris in this time period, as we've talked about in a couple of different episodes. There's Atari Games Corporation, which is the arcade company. And there's Atari Corporation, which is the console company. Atari Games Corporation owns the rights to all Atari arcade games before the split, before 1984, when Atari Corporation was sold off. They own the arcade rights to the really early stuff, your Pongs and your Breakouts and your uh, Asteroids and all of that. But they don't own the home rights to those games. Atari Corporation does. But Atari Games Corporation can release home versions of the games that they are releasing in the arcades going forward. They're also still partially owned by Namco at this point, and they are basically the sole licensee in the United States for Namco product in the arcade, which means they also have home rights as well to Namco arcade products, things like Pac-Man. So they have a big catalog of successful product, and they want to bring it into the home. And the only place to bring it into the home is really through Nintendo. So uh, Hideyuki Nakajima, president of the company, comes to Nintendo and wants a license for Atari Games Corporation. He feels that his company is special. It's got the Atari legacy. It's got all sorts of Atari hit products. It's also got the Namco catalog. Nakajima believes that Atari Games deserves preferential treatment. Now, they're not the first company to believe this. There are plenty of companies that have felt that because they're bigger and stronger and more powerful and have better games, that they deserved special treatment with Nintendo. And to Nintendo's credit, whatever else you would say about them, they did not give preferential treatment to anybody. Now, later on, they allow Konami and Acclaim to each have a second license to put out NES games. That happened. But there's no indication that they turned down anyone that tried to do the same thing. If you're willing to spend the money in order to set up a separate shell company in order to release games on, and you're willing to pay the licensing fees and all that, we'll give you another five games. Right. There's no indication that they ever turned anyone down. So even though those two companies got an advantage, there's no indication that someone else couldn't have gotten that advantage too. Now, this happened a little later. At the time that Atari Games Corp is coming on, that hasn't happened yet. The second license thing hasn't happened yet. This is going on in 87. So they say, no, you can't have any special treatment. So Nakajima comes in and and signs as a licensee. Atari games cannot use the Atari name in the home because of Atari Corporation. When it comes to creating a home subsidiary, they have to come up with a new name. They can't be Atari in the home. So they come up with the name Tengen for their home games. Atari is a term from Go. Tengen is also a term from Go. It refers to the center area of the Go board. So it's just continuing that Go metaphor. So that's Tengen. It's the home console arm of Atari Games Corporation. And they release three games, I think, as a regular licensee. And Nintendo takes Nakajima and Atari Games under their wing. Because here's the thing. It's a patriarchal system. 
Nintendo demands a lot of its licensees, but it also provides them a lot. It teaches them the ropes of the business. It introduces them to all the buyers. It shows them how retail works. It shows them how inventory works. I recall when Lincoln really take Nakajima under their wing once he becomes a licensee and teach them how the entire infrastructure of this works. But Nakajima is a very proud man. And Nakajima doesn't want to be the obedient child that's let out to be patted on the head and be like, it's okay, it's okay, Tengen, we'll take care of you. Nakajima feels that his company deserves an equal place at the table. Equals, not paternal relationship. And he feels that Atari should be able to release as many games as it wants. The thing that is stopping him from doing this is the lockout chip in the NES. There is a chip called the Tennest chip inside that system that interfaces with the cartridge in a very particular way that then allows the game to run in the NES. If you put in a cartridge that doesn't have that tin nest chip stuff in it, the lockout chip stuff in it, that NES game will not work. And heaven help you in this modern era if your tin nest chip decides it wants to go on the fritz. Mm-hmm. Which is actually the most common way that the things die. Exactly. Nintendo is the only company that knows how to make this chip. They're the only company that knows how this chip works. The code, the handshake code between the chip and the system is copyrighted. If you copy it, you're violating Nintendo's rights. You can't just copy it. Now, there's a time-honored way to get around that in copyright. And that's clean room reverse engineering. Do you know how that works? Yeah, I believe we covered this before. I think we did. You have two teams. You have the dirty team and the clean team. Dirty Team takes the Nintendo and goes, all right, let's take out our multimeters, our analyzers, our oscilloscopes, our really fancy microscopes, and all sorts of things, figure out how this works. Okay, pin A, pin B, pin C, pin whatever. We have figured out how this works. All right, Clean Team, in broad scopes, it does this and needs to do that and this other thing over here. How you achieve that, we don't care. It just needs that if we plug in a cartridge and then the chip goes, I send out a challenge on pins three, seven, and eight, it must respond on pins two and four with, I'm awesome. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so it's a team of people that have no idea how the original works, that have never gone in and analyzed how that original works making something that does the exact same thing. And how do they know it does the exact same thing? Because the team that got themselves dirty has peeled that chip apart layer by layer, poked and prodded it, figured out what everything does, and then, like you said, just tells them, okay, we need this, 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 and this functionality. Go to it. That's how you get around copyright with code like this. That's very famously how the PC, the IBM PC, could be cloned. They used all off-the-shelf parts, so the hardware was something you could just buy at the store. It wasn't custom IBM parts that were patented or anything. The only thing that was proprietary to IBM was the BIOS. The first PC companies, PC-compatible companies, did a clean room reverse engineering of the IBM BIOS and therefore could put out a PC-compatible. It's the same idea. There were companies that successfully dealt 
with the NES lockout chip. Color Dreams, Codemasters in the United Kingdom, these companies figured out ways to do it. One way that they did it was they actually just zapped the chip. They just shorted the chip, essentially, so that it didn't do its function, but it didn't realize it hadn't done its function, and so the game played. Um, That was the common way to do it, I think. Tengen, Atari Games, could not, for the life of them, figure out how to reverse engineer this chip. They couldn't do it. So they did something, and we talked about this before, they did something very, very bad. Hey there, Mr. Copyright Office. I'm in having a legal dispute with Nintendo. <laughs> Could you uh, send me that there documentation? Yes, they claimed that Nintendo was suing them for intellectual property infringement. Logically, if you're being sued for stealing something and you need to prove that you didn't, you have to know what you're being accused of stealing. In general, When you have something that is copyrighted, that is also a trade secret, like the code that is used by the 10 Nest chips to communicate between the cartridge and the console, that is kept locked up tight at the U.S. Copyright Office. It is possible to view it, but they watch you like a hawk and you can't take notes. If you're in a legal dispute, this doesn't help you at all. Because, obviously, you cannot examine and take notes on the thing you were supposed to have stolen in order to prove that you didn't steal it. So the one exception, maybe there's some other obscure exception too, but the one major exception to this kind of stuff being kept completely and absolutely secret from everybody is if you are the subject of litigation involving this copyrighted material, you have the right to review the copyrighted material in detail so that you can mount a defense saying that we did not steal it. Now, of course, the Copyright Office doesn't just take your word for it. I couldn't call up the Copyright Office tomorrow and say, Hey guys, I'm being sued. If you could send me this stuff, that'd be great. Yeah, it's not going to get you very far. You have to prove you're being sued. And one way to prove you're being sued is to sign an affidavit which means that you have sworn. It's just like, it's the same kind of oath as when you're giving court testimony. You are swearing before an appropriate official that what you are telling them is true under penalty of perjury. And guess what, kids? They perjured themselves. They did. They lied on an affidavit. They got a signed affidavit saying that they were the subject of litigation, and they got the copyright office to turn over the schematics on the tin nest chip. They flat out copied it. They may have still done a clean room reverse engineering. I I don't know, but they did it very cheating. They weren't allowed to have the original plans. So that's bad. They finished their reverse engineering once they have the plans. They put their games out on the market, and then they sue Nintendo for antitrust monopolistic practices, saying that they're restraining the market. The sad thing is, you know, they they may have had a case, maybe. If they were to have just sued onto itself and not had done this whole 10 nest chip thing. But they were very bad widow boys because they broke the law to get this stuff. They perjured themselves to get this code. Now, I know most of us probably haven't actually perjured themselves before or 
have any real idea. I mean, this is something that comes up a lot in legal shows and whatever. He lied. He perjured himself. Send him off to jail or whatever. Of course, I only have this from the United States justice system level of things. But you got things like misdemeanors, felonies, different degrees of felony. Where on that sort of scale is perjury? Perjury is a felony. I'm not sure they actually went after anyone for the perjury itself. But the act of doing that didn't exactly endear them (laughs) when it came to this case. Certainly annoyed a few judges, I imagine. The problem here came because they would have almost certainly had a fair use defense. There would be a fair use defense if using those portions of the 10S architecture that were under copyright would be fair use if it was absolutely necessary to further their goal, which is selling games on the system. And in fact, one landmark case that we didn't discuss, Sega v. Accolade, which happened a few years later in 1992, ended up revolving just around that. Sega had its version of the lockout chip. Accolade decided that they wanted to be on the Sega Genesis without having to pay a licensing fee. So they reverse engineered the security system and they did it cleanly. And they argued that there was a fair use exception for doing so because there was a serious antitrust concern. Because previous cases dealing with antitrust law had basically said that if a trademark is misused to limit competition in the manufacturer's sale of a product, that's an antitrust violation. And therefore, it would be fair use to make use of this trademarked material in order to circumvent this monopolistic practice, essentially. I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially what it came down to. Atari Games Corp. could have had that same defense, potentially, but they cheated. They stole. It was tainted. There's no fair use exception when you willfully go out and steal it from the other person. Definitely. So they lost the case. And imagine a lot of money, too. Absolutely. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't go well for them. And, of course, the relationship between Nintendo and Tengen, Atari Games, was forever broken. Both sides felt hurt and betrayed. I mean, Howard Lincoln and Arakawa really felt that they had gone the extra mile for Nakajima in, in getting him involved in the business. And Nintendo was paternalistic. It did very much feel like everyone was family. Not everyone wants that, you know. Most people don't want daddy hanging around all the time. So I'm, I'm not saying that everyone else was happy just being like, oh, shucks, thanks, Nintendo, for letting us bask in your glory. I mean, that's not the way it was. But from the Nintendo executive's perspective, they felt like their third parties should be grateful for what they've been granted because everybody's making money. Yes, Nintendo's making more money than everyone else, but everyone is making money. Nintendo is powerful. Nintendo is great. We surrender our will as of this date. That's right. And Nintendo was fair to everybody. Now, whether that amount of control in the marketplace was a good thing for the market or not, that's a, that's a different issue. But Nintendo was fair in that they had policies and they stuck to them for everybody. And if you played ball with them, they helped you out. Very paternalistic relationship. So Nintendo felt betrayed by Tengen. I imagine so. And Nakajima felt insulted by Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just bad blood all around. And then, of course, the Tetris case got involved. And we won't go into that because we went into all the Tetris stuff in our Tetris episode. But let's just say that Nintendo was extra happy when they learned that Tengen was releasing a Tetris cartridge with console rights that they didn't actually have. 
That wasn't mm-hmm. willful on Tingen's part. Tingen really thought they had the rights. But Howard Lincoln has very much admitted, uh, so this is not even speculation, he has very much admitted that he took special glee in sending the cease and desist order to Tingen on the manufacture of Tetris. As a bit of an aside there, you constantly mentioned that Nintendo had this parental aspect to their subsidiaries, their partners, their game developers. Sure. Does that tie into some of the corporate culture that goes on in Japan where you sort of like you serve a shogun, you serve a lord, you serve a company, you serve the company as itself, and it's very much of, yes, you're going to work hard, yes, you're going to do all this stuff. As a result of that, we're also going to take care of you. We're going to give you lifelong employment. We're going to provide you with food, clothing, this kind of thing. We'll protect you. We'll keep a good eye on you as long as you're working for us. I think so. I really think so. Nintendo is a Kyoto company. Kyoto is the cultural capital of Japan. It's the historic home of the emperor. I mean, they're in Tokyo now, but I mean, it was the historic home of the emperor. It has the most temples. It's the city that the Allies didn't bomb in World War II. So of all of Japan's major cities, it's the only one that still has its old buildings completely intact. It is a place of tradition. It is a place of culture. It is a place that you feel the weight of hundreds of years. And Hiroshi Yamauchi, president of Nintendo, grew up in that culture, was a scion of a successful family in that culture. And I really do think that that cultural idea did uh, kind of pervade all of Nintendo's dealings as a result of that. He was an autocrat that wanted to rule with an iron fist. And Arakawa, his son-in-law, was a very different man. He was not the cold-hearted, iron-fisted Yamauchi. He was a gentle and kind man, but he still, he was Japanese. I mean, he had spent a lot of time in the West. He'd gotten some degrees in the West. He spoke decent English, spent a lot of time in the United States and Canada, but he was Japanese as well. And he promoted this idea of family within Nintendo of America, even more than a lot of other subsidiaries of Japanese companies. He really treated it very much in that Japanese family style way as well within Nintendo of America itself. And I think that paternalism then naturally extended to the third parties that they were working with. So absolutely, that was a big part of what Nintendo was. And it goes straight back, I think, to that Japanese culture. So that takes care of one Atari. But there is another Atari out there. The Atari Corporation. The company of Jack Trammell. The company of Jack Business's War Trammell. And Jack Trammell is not happy. Jack Trammell's primary focus is on the computer market. That's always been his first love. I mean, he was the guy at Commodore. Mm-hmm. Well, his first love was calculators even back before that. but. In this realm, his first love was computers. But he understood very well that the video game industry was on the way back, and the best way to fund some of the computer projects he wanted to do was to vigorously re-enter the console market, which he did. We've talked about that before. They released a cost-reduced version of the 2600 called the 2600 Junior to inhabit the very low end of the market. 
and they released the Atari 7800, which is the system that was meant to be Atari's next generation system in 1984 that never got a wide release because of the crash. Atari had an okay system in the 7800. It was not a terrible system. I'm not a technical guy, but I think probably at the end of the day, it's fair to say that in most ways the NES had a slight edge. But the 7800 is a leap forward from the 2600. It is a better system. They have the Atari name recognition. They have the classic Atari properties. But there's one thing that they don't have and that they cannot have. And that's the latest hit arcade games coming out of Japan. And that's because, as we talked about before, Nintendo, in addition to requiring its third parties to only release five games per year, also stipulated that any games that they released on the Nintendo Entertainment System had to remain exclusive to that system for two years. Which is essentially two lifetimes in video game terms, because nobody cares about a game oftentimes six months after it's released, let alone a year, let alone two years. That guarantees that those games, if you release them on the NES, are going to only be viable on the NES. By the time you can release them for other systems, it's too late. Nobody cares anymore. This hamstrings Atari. I mean, it does. Atari has other problems, too. But there's no doubt this hamstrings them. They try to compensate a little bit by working with home computer companies. They license games from Epics and Broderbund and Electronic Arts and all of these companies. They have the classic Atari properties as well, but those are old. You're not going to be able to sell a system based on asteroids anymore. And they start out with about 10 to 15% of the market. That's uh, with the 7800 and 2600 combined. It just goes downhill from there. They're getting crushed in the marketplace. Well, Jack's a guy that never met a lawsuit he didn't like either. He likes taking the war of business into every realm he can, including the courtroom. So he sues. Separate suit from the Atari game suit. He sues Nintendo for antitrust practices and restraint of trade. Because you've got that exclusivity clause, but you've also got other things going on. You've got all the rumors most of which are probably more than rumor, most of which are probably fact, about how Nintendo manipulates the market, how they bully retailers into maintaining the price of the product that Nintendo once maintained, into not taking competitors' product. It's never direct. It's always subtle. It's like, you know, that's a nice shipment of Nintendo games we have coming next week. It would be a shame if something were to happen to it. By the way, I noticed that you've got the NES on sale, 10% off. I'm not so sure that's such a good idea. The drivers need to buy extra soda to make sure that they can get there on time. In order for that to happen, they need a 10% kickback. Be a shame if the drivers couldn't make it on time and the delivery was missed. Because they didn't have enough caffeine because they didn't have their 10% kickback. And the FTC, we we discussed this, the Federal Trade Commission ends up investigating Nintendo for price fixing specifically during the same time period because they are basically compelling retailers to maintain a certain price on the system. The NES does not drop in price for a very long time. That NES that was $100, give or take, in 1986 was still $100 in 1990. That's not generally how 
that works anymore. Current console cycles, you get a price cut after a couple of years, you know? You get a price cut after six months. Sometimes, depending on how successful the console's been. Absolutely, you do. Nintendo was artificially keeping the price higher, most likely, through price-fixing schemes as well. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of good stuff to go after Nintendo for. There's just one problem with Jack Trammell. He's kind of cheap. Oh, yeah. Very cheap. Yeah, he doesn't like spending on marketing at all. He's never trusted marketing. And he doesn't really want to pay out for his lawyers as well. At least that's the story. I have it from two different sources who worked with Atari during this time period. I think one said it to me and one said it in an interview someplace else with somebody else, but that said that basically when it came to litigating that case, Jack found the cheapest San Francisco lawyers he possibly could that specialized in that area of law. Not the best of lawyers. That's, that's the story. I'm not, I have no personal knowledge of this, obviously. I'm just relaying what others have said. But that's what the word on the street is, is that he did not get the best lawyers. And we've already established that Nintendo tends to get the best lawyers money can buy, and preferably ones that are personally vetted. Absolutely. They get tough litigators. Tough, tough, tough litigators. The best. Atari has a real case here. Everybody in the industry gets deposed. Everybody in the industry testifies. The list of witnesses called in that case, which Stanford University has a large portion of the trial transcript, and they've posted kind of summaries of the contents of those trial transcripts. Everybody who was anybody in the business was getting called to the stand on that one. They went through Nintendo's practices with third parties and with retailers with a fine-tooth comb. They came up with evidence of Nintendo salespeople actually threatening retaliation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They came up with all of this stuff, but Nintendo's lawyers were so good that they were able to play it off. Oh, he didn't really mean that. That's not official Nintendo policy. It's just high-pressure sales tactics. Everybody knows it. It's not like Nintendo would actually do something like that. We wouldn't be a tad disingenuous. Hi, I'm Tad Disingenuous. We don't stop anyone from being involved in our marketplace. They have to pay the licensing fees that are ours by right because we have this patented technology. But we let everybody play. No one is stopping Atari Corporation from marketing its own system. We're not stopping that. They're on the marketplace. If they can't sell, that's their fault. It's not our fault. They have equal access to the airways. They have equal access to retailers. They don't have equal shelf space, but they have equal access to talk to the retailers. It's not our fault. People like our product. Nintendo, it's pretty clear, thought that there was a good chance they were going to lose this case. Because some of that stuff they did, it, it was pretty blatant. The exclusivity clause was pretty blatant. The price fixing was pretty blatant. There was some stuff that was pretty blatant. They started investing more and more in Europe during this time period because they were afraid that they would have to make up for the inevitable lost profits in the United States when they could no longer run the market in the way they had run the market in the past. But Jack Trammell bought cheap lawyers. Exactly. And to the shock 
from the way David Sheff in Game Over recounts it. Literally the shock of the people in the courtroom. A verdict was returned in favor of Nintendo. More specifically, there had been three charges, essentially, against Nintendo in the case. The first had to do with Atari being directly harmed by these restrictive licensing deals. This is the count that the jury unanimously decided in favor of Nintendo. There were two other counts as well that had to do with the monopolistic practices and restraint of trade, the more general way that Nintendo was manipulating the market. The jury actually deadlocked on those two counts, so they didn't return a verdict in favor of anybody. But since there was no harm to Atari, since the main count, the one about the harm to Atari, was dismissed, the judge in the case went ahead and, presumably at a motion from Nintendo, dismissed the other two charges. So those two counts that had to deal more broadly with restraint of trade and monopolistic practices were just dismissed entirely, and the main count, the jury found in favor of Nintendo. Now, I understand you would really, really like to go out to San Francisco and get your hands on said paperwork. Yeah, at the very least, the trial transcript exists because Stanford has it. There's a very good chance that most, if not all, of the depositions still exist as well. That would be in the the federal records repository out there. That would certainly reveal a lot about the practices of Nintendo and the wider practices of the industry at that time. would be a fascinating compendium to look through, and um, I hope to at some point. But yeah, Nintendo, Nintendo wins the case. Now, Atari Corporation could have appealed at this point. I'm sure they could have found something worth appealing on. But here again comes Nintendo's savvy and a little bit of Jack Trammell's cheapness. Because at this point, having won the case, apparently what Nintendo did is that they presented a bill to Atari Corporation that was reported to be somewhere between 500000 and $1 million for, I guess, costs, uh, legal costs related to the case. Then Nintendo said, now you could pay this, or we could just forget about this if you just go away and don't appeal the case. So according to sources at the time, that's exactly what Jack did. He agreed not to appeal in exchange for not having to pay that money. Now, as we talked about in Playing With Power, they were still in an untenable position. They still ended up dumping exclusivity. They still ended up letting third parties do their own manufacturing. They still ended up loosening a lot of this stuff that they were doing, even though they won that court case. They knew they had dodged a bullet. You know, they weren't stupid. On the other hand, while they did dodge a bullet, you know, the, the interesting thing about technology, about the video game industry, but also the computer industry and computer software industry, is that because it moves forward so quickly, it really is almost impossible for someone to create a true monopoly because there's always something else that comes along that's going to undermine you. In 1981, IBM introduced the PC, and everyone thought that that was the end for anyone not named IBM in the personal computer business. Because IBM controlled 80% of the mainframe market, 80-85%, and now they're getting into PCs, into personal computers. That's the end for everybody. I don't know about you, Alex, but I certainly don't have an IBM PC at home. Exactly. 
It ended up being Microsoft and Intel that won. And then when Microsoft won, because they were giving everyone the operating system and then started bundling their web browser with it, everyone thought there's no way anyone is ever going to overthrow Microsoft. Microsoft is going to be the technology kingpin that dominates everyone forever and ever. Oh, hail Google. (laughs) Exactly. There is always disruptive technology. And for example, as far as that goes, take something that's a little more prevalent to our realm here. The big thing as far as audio editing and video editing is Adobe products. Right. And there is a slew of underdogs that do just as capable, if not more capable things than Adobe products do are maybe a little bit more simplified and easier to understand and doesn't have all of that baggage and it's much more attractive. And that's why, for example, we edit the, well, I edit this podcast using different software. Exactly. So there is an argument to be made that just because Nintendo had cornered 70% of the video game market and they were the absolute arbiter of who could play in their walled garden, that it didn't necessarily mean that they had the power to crush all of their competitors. Atari was underfunded. Atari did not market effectively. Atari did not license effectively. Atari didn't have as good a product as the NES. Atari was never going to beat Nintendo. Sorry, Atari fanboys, but it's true. They were never going to beat Nintendo, even if it had been a level playing field. If you had been able to play Mega Man on both the NES and the Atari 7800, Nintendo was still going to win. And you know what? Capcom wasn't going to devote the resources to port Mega Man to the 7800, even if there was no exclusivity, because they had such a small share of the market that it wasn't worth the effort, especially since Capcom is a Japanese company. And back then, even today, it's still true, but especially back then, the Japanese companies catered to the Japanese market first. And Atari weren't never penetrating that Japanese market. We did an episode based on them trying to and the spectacular failure that was. Exactly. The same restrictions didn't exist to the same degree in Japan as existed in the United States. Nintendo didn't have quite as ironclad a grip in the marketplace, especially in the early years of the system. They still wiped the floor with the competition. Sega, Epoch, Tomy, the MSX consortium with the MSX home computer. Nintendo still wiped the floor with all those companies there without that same degree of monopoly. They had some control, but they did not have the same degree of control. On the one hand, you can say, yeah, they were clearly using monopolistic practices, and that's against the law. On the other hand, you can say, well, did it make a difference? And that's not really a legal argument, but I I don't think it made a difference. I think Nintendo accomplishes the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Still, though, you, you feel like Atari Corporation could have won that case. What Was it the lawyers? I mean, that's just what a couple of people have said. I don't know for certain that it's the lawyers. Maybe the court was just moved by the fact that Nintendo, even though they had a lot of power, didn't really have the amount of power to crush its competitors that, that Atari was claiming. I mean, maybe Atari just didn't really didn't reach its burden of proof and even better attorneys wouldn't have been able to. I don't know. But. For whatever reason, Nintendo lived to fight another day. It changed the company. The company was never as big and powerful again, 
even when the Super Nintendo or the Wii did so well, or the Switch is doing so well now, never as powerful again. It was definitely the the high watermark of Nintendo's use of the courts because they took a case that lots of people thought there's no way in heck they win this. Even Nintendo itself was probably secretly saying to itself, I'm not sure we can win this. And they Prepare won. Prepare for the worst. Prepare for the worst. Wait, we won? And they won. So that's kind of Nintendo and, and the legal system. All right. So with no more major cases relating to Nintendo... What subject do we delve into in our next episode? Well, this was a Nintendo episode, but we did spend a fair amount of time talking about a couple of Ataris as well, as we have done many times in the past. And I think it's time that we talk about that one Atari that we never really talk about. The French one. I'm, of course, referring to Infogrom, the company that becomes Atari. Now, I'm not talking about going through how Infogrom became Atari. We've done that. We did an Atari brand episode where we did it. Yeah. (laughs) The Infogrom story is an interesting story because this is a company that was founded by a couple of enthusiasts back in the early 1980s. But steadily, over the next few years, over the next decade or so, and with several strokes of luck along the way managed to become pretty much the largest video game company in Europe. The second largest by revenue in the entire business worldwide. Third parties, not counting console makers. And then just as it reaches this ridiculously incredible height, completely implodes in on itself. Sounds like a glorious rise and fall episode. Absolutely. So uh, next time, let's let's take a look at Infogrom and then the triumph and the tragedy therein. All right. The rise and fall of Infogrom next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Email us feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 